Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. We're going to be looking at yet another uh, string of, of what has become kind of a four-part mini-series on church heroes. And uh, uh, we looked at some in the, in the scripture, in Acts, and we looked at one last week as kind of a, just a one-off long weekend do a little more recent one, and we looked at uh, D.L. Moody. Unlike Stephen and Philip in scriptures, the hero we're going to talk about today remains unsung. For the most part, in fact, uh, because of a, a namesake, uh, another person by the same name, he gets a bad rap because we often assume it's the same person or we bypass because we've come to not like that name. Uh, he's just an average person with faith that we're going to find out is reliable, and we're going to find out that it's applicable to each one of us. His name, Ananias. Now, if you've been with us through this series, a few chapters ago we ran into another Ananias. He was the one who lied and misrepresented uh, that he was giving the entire proceeds from the sale of some of his land to the church, when in fact it was only a portion. He was wanting everybody, he wanted the glory for himself. Uh, he's not around anymore, so get rid of that Ananias in your thinking. This is another Ananias. He's only mentioned in 12 verses max in all of Scripture, but perhaps even more so than the others that we've talked about, he has a faith that's relatable to each one of us. And if you haven't identified so far yet with either Stephen or Philip or D.L. Moody, <clears throat> excuse me, Perhaps by the end of our time today, you will have made a connection and see yourself as another Ananias. Ananias, from what we know, lived in the city of Damascus. And here's a quick picture of what Damascus looks like, coming up on your screen in a moment, which is about 250 kilometers from Jerusalem. Uh, in Acts 22:12, it says that uh, Ananias was a devout follower of the law and of high character. He was a man of God, in other words. In Acts 9, we meet Ananias for the first time. In Damascus, there was a disciple, the scripture says, named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The, the word disciple that we've talked about many times from the front here in Hebrew simply means student. A disciple is someone who has a high desire, a high devotion to emulate and follow their teacher. And Ananias wanted to be more and more and more like Jesus. His reputation was known throughout the land. He was someone who had studied the scriptures. And I imagine during one of his prayer times with God, this occurred. He heard God whisper to him, Ananias, Ananias. He steps back for a moment and he responds, yes, Lord. How cool is that? Yes, Lord, I love that. How often when God whispers to you, do you pretend you didn't hear it or think that must be last night's pepperoni pizza talking to me? Instead, what would it look like if you actually learned how to say yes to those whispers of God? Because that's where it all starts. Here's what I want you to see. God can do anything, but what God really loves to do is to use his people, us, to seek and to save those who are lost. The problem is that many of us hear these whispers to get involved and we ignore them or we say no. If you want to be blessed when God whispers, say yes. If you want to find rest when God whispers, say yes. If you want to be in God's presence when God whispers, simply say yes. 
I heard it said once that the letters in the word yes represent you experience something supernatural when you say yes. I'd like to amend that and have it be every time you say yes, you experience the spirit. Think about that when you say yes. And you step out. You get the best chance possible to experience the supernatural activity of God, the Holy Spirit working in your life. God, in all of his redemptive potential, wants each one of us to play a role in this redemption process. And he's whispering all the time. He's calling our name. He's trying to get our attention. And I wonder how many of us either miss that altogether or say no. Ananias does not say no. He says, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm here. Here I am, every part of me. What is it? What would you have me do? What, would, what could I do for you? I'm in. I love my church. I love what you're doing. Yes, I'm here. And then the Lord says, well, then go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, Ananias is a smart guy. And right about now, he's thinking, I know I said yes, God, but did you just say Saul from Tarsus? That's Saul, Saul from Tarsus. Have you been watching YouTube, E-W-E? -E? Have you been watching YouTube, God? Do you know who Saul of Tarsus is? We saw a few weeks ago that Saul of Tarsus, a young 30-something, just stood there approving of, enabling, and supporting the stoning of Stephen. He was cheering on every single rock that was thrown. Saul was a part of the religious elite. He would have been voted most likely to succeed in, in Tarsus High School class AD 22. He was on the AAA fast track to admiration, acquisition, and accumulation. Look what he wrote about himself in Philippians 3. He says, if anyone, el if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, ha, I got more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I've got the lineage, I got it all. He's saying, I'm Jewish to the core. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. In regards to zeal, I'm persecuting this upstart the way group. As for legalistic righteousness, I'm faultless. As a Pharisee, I wear the robes and I have the prayer phylacteries on my head that shows how many verses I've got memorized and saying all the time. He was religious to the core. He was trained in, in the rabbinical school of Gamaliel, the highly respected teacher that we were introduced to back in chapter 5. Gamaliel was the one who stood up when Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin and said, wait a minute, if this is of God, we can't stop it. If this isn't of God, it'll just die on its own. Saul's a rising star, though, in the pharisaical and political world, and he was not content to just take Gamaliel's advice to just let it die. So he takes matters into his own, own hands to do something about these new followers of Jesus. This saved-by-grace thing was getting out of hand. Saul was going into synagogues around Jerusalem, going into people's homes, finding Christians, pulling them out, shackling them, putting them in prison, and killing many of them. And it didn't just happen in Jerusalem, as we've been understanding. As we learned two weeks ago, lots of Christ followers fled Jerusalem when persecution broke out after Stephen's death, death, death sorry, seeking refuge in different cities and countries, Samaria, to the other parts of the world. And Saul starts his mission to track them down. 
like a hitman for the Pharisee mafia, he goes after them with henchmen behind him, guards to boot. He goes to the Jewish officials in Jerusalem saying, give me the authority, give me the papers, because I hear that this Christian movement is happening in Damascus, and I want to go snuff it out before it gets going. I want to go get them. I want to bring them all back here for punishment. I'm tired of people saying that name, Jesus. Going to Damascus was not an easy journey, however. It took over a week to travel the 250-kilometer-long road to Damascus, but Paul is motivated here. See, there were no trains, there were no planes, there were no automobiles, no divided highways, no lights on the perimeter. Oh, wait a minute, that's not a bad thing. There's no lights on the perimeter. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be nice if there's no lights on the perimeter? Yeah, anyway, uh, point is, it wasn't an easy trip to Damascus. You had to want to go there. You had to be motivated. We're not told exactly why, of all places, Saul would choose to go that way to Damascus to start the roundup, except maybe its strategic importance, because it might have been the place he determined would keep this Christianity thing from spreading to the Roman Empire, because Damascus was a strategic commercial area. Several important trade routes crossed there, and if Christianity, or the way as it was known back then, got a foothold there, well then, who knows what could go through Damascus and spread throughout the rest of the Roman Empire. Note again on this map, before it goes off, how Jesus felt, how, sorry, not how Jesus, how Jews felt so strongly against the Samaritans that they had to take the perimeter, they had to take the long way around Samaria to go north from Jerusalem. You see how it's just like that big bow there, like I gotta go around Samaria. No self-respecting Jew is gonna put his foot into Samaria. Saul, full of religious zeal, doggedly then begins chasing down every believer and is willing to go to the ends of the earth to do it. So on one hand, we have Jesus telling everybody, go to the ends of the earth, take, take my grace, take the salvation that I offer to the ends of the earth, and now we have Saul on the other hand saying, I'm going to go to the ends of the earth to eradicate this bunch of radicals that, uh, are against, uh, that I'm opposed to. So later on in his life, he's given now a defense of himself before King Agrippa. It's, we're all the way forward now in Acts 26. So, but there's an interesting side point here. Paul doesn't go, I don't want to talk about the way I was before I became a believer. No, in fact, in front of King Agrippa, he actually goes back now in time and talks about how he was before he became a follower of Christ. He says this, I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Uh, many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Now, it's an interesting word here. The word obsessed in that is perhaps better translated in some other versions as violently opposed or E, in the ESV, raging fury. And it's from the Greek word from which we get our word maniac. Paul is saying he's a maniac. I was a maniac back then. I was a maniac after every believer. Look what he writes to the Galatian church. Dear brothers and sisters, I solemnly assure you that the good news of salvation, which I preach, is not based on mere human reasoning or logic. For my message came by direct revelation from Jesus Christ himself. No one else taught me. And you know what I was like. 
when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted, same word again, how I violently persecuted the Christians. I did my best to get rid of them. I was one of the most religious Jews in my own age group, and I tried as hard as possible to follow all the traditions of my religion. Saul is coming to Damascus for people like Ananias. Ananias would have been on his hit list. And God right now, right in this moment, is saying to Ananias, hey, you said yes. You said yes to whatever I asked, and I'm asking you now to go down to Straight Street to a house owned by a man named Judas. And by the way, Straight Street still exists in Damascus. It's still there. And you're going to see just a couple of quick pics showing one from about 200 years ago and one from a little less time than that. But just so you can know, Damascus is real. Straight Street is real. Saul of Tarsus is there, by the way, on Straight Street, and I need you to help. Would you go? Well, would you go? Would you go? This guy has got you on his hit list, and he's got the authority to pull it off. Would you go? I was privileged, along with a few other pastors in Manitoba, to meet with Tony Campolo a number of years ago when he was here to speak uh, for a session. And we actually got to spend lunch with Tony, uh, and he told us this story. <clears throat> he said, I was preaching at this Bible college about 15 minutes before I was to take the stage. A whole group of people say, we need to pray for you. They make me get on my knees. I get on my knees. Eight men put their hands on my bald dome, and they start praying. Remember, this isn't me. This is Tony talking. <laughs> Eight men put their hands on my bald dome, and they start praying. And I'm sweating. And they're just praying, God, work through Tony. May the Spirit speak through him. And then one of them says, and God, my heart is broken for Charlie. Charlie Stoltzfus. Charlie Stoltzfus right now is about ready to leave his wife and his three kids. He lives in that silver trailer down the road, Lord, and he's about to leave. God, I pray that you'd intervene. Stop this from happening. He needs to know you, God. They need to know you. Protect their marriage. And Tony, this whole time this prayer is going on, is going, I don't know who Charlie is. I'm the one who's about to get up and speak here. More prayers for me, please. He gets up. He teaches. He walks out to his rental car, and he's driving to the airport. Going down the main thoroughfare, he sees in the distance a guy with his thumb out on the side of the road, and he hears a whisper from God, pick up the hitchhiker, pick up the hitchhiker. Tony tells us in this meeting, I never pick up hitchhikers. He never picks up hitchhikers. God says, just pick him up, Tony, just pick him up. Tony pulls over, unlocks the door, lets the guy in, says, where are you headed? Well, I'm just headed to the airport, the guy says. So is it okay, Tony says, if I drop you off downtown somewhere? The guy's like, yeah, just take me anywhere from here. I just, I just want to go. I just got to go. Great, all right. Starts driving along. My name's Tony, by the way. What's your name? Charlie. Charlie what? Charlie Stolfus. Charlie Stolfus? Charlie Stolfus, Tony whips the car around in a massive U-turn right there on the highway. He hits the automatic lock on the door buttons flies down the road, makes a left, says, Charlie Stolfus, you live in a silver trailer. You're, you have three kids. You right now are about to leave your wife. And this guy looks at him and goes, who are you? 
And Tony says, I'm a man of God, and I'm here to tell you something. Don't leave your bride. I want you, I want you to lead me to the silver trailer. I want you to walk into that trailer, and I want you to get your wife and your kids, because I've got a word for you. The guy walks to the trailer, kind of whining as his wife sees him kind of coming in. Sorry, I don't know why I'm back. This, this guy. And in a matter of moments, Tony leads the family of five to Christ. I tell you that story because it's as bizarre and beautiful and profound as the stories we heard last week about D.L. Moody. And this is real time. This is in our day and age. This one just happened a few years ago, and it all began with hearing a whisper from God and saying yes. What if Tony had said no? I don't think that marriage lasts. I think those three kids grow up with parents in different countries, perhaps. But now an entirely new legacy is birth because Tony didn't say no to a whisper from God. So let's back the truck up to our story for a minute. As Saul of Tarsus is making his way to Damascus, walking those 250 kilometers through the desert, Scripture tells us that he sees this brilliant, radiant light in the middle of the day which causes him to drop face down on the ground. He's just down. And he hears this voice in Arabic saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is trying to look up, but he's blinded. Who are you, Lord? And he's just kind of like, I, I can't see. Who are you? And a voice from heaven says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know that little line? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting? Made me think back to Matthew 25, where Jesus said, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Jesus is telling Saul right now, he said, when you persecute my children, when you persecute my followers, you are persecuting me. You're persecuting me. Now, quick time out here. Probably every one of us has had people say derogatory, uh, negative, hurtful things to us because of our faith. And what we see in this passage is that what Saul was doing throughout the land wasn't just hurting the people that he was physically hurting, his actions were actually being taken as persecution towards Jesus himself. So when those people say those derogatory and hurtful things about you and your faith, you can know that Jesus is taking every single one of them personally, and he has the final say. You know, you can just let it go. Jesus heard it. Jesus took it. Jesus is going to have the last word. And if it's Jesus who goes, hey, who are you, why are you persecuting me, Saul? You'll know, they'll know who's saying it, right? And Saul, with all this power, with all this authority, is now face down on the ground and helpless. And God tells him, now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul gets up. Can you imagine him getting up? He can't see. He's stumbling around. The soldiers, his bodyguards, they know something has happened. They can see he's kind of stumbling around, but they didn't hear anything. They don't know what's happened. And Saul's telling them, I can't see, I'm blind. And so this proud man who had all this power vested in him now has his arms being held as he's guided into town by his security guards. It's interesting to me that these guards are kept in the dark. Obviously something has happened, but they're not let in on it. Why not? I could even rationalize in my head that it would be a good thing for them to have heard everything and see the transformation in Saul there and kind of, you know, verify, yeah, we were there, we saw Saul, we saw it all happen. But no, I think it's because this is all about Jesus and Saul. This was an intensely personal thing. And when you think about it, isn't it that way for each of us when we come to the Lord? 
Isn't it an intensely personal thing? It's between you and Jesus, no one else. And it was between Saul and Jesus and no one else. It's an intensely personal moment when you come face to face with Jesus, even figuratively. And when you see your sin before you, and when you confess, and when you believe in him. An attendant on a flight told everyone that the pilot had informed her that up ahead there was some turbulence to be expected, and could everyone please take their seats and put their seatbelts on? It was kind of a rowdy flight. Everybody was kind of having a great time. The folks weren't quick to respond, so she gets on the PA again and warns them again. This flight is about to get bumpy. For your own safety, take your seats. Well, most of them did, but some didn't, so she changed her tone. Ladies and gentlemen, for your own good, take your seats now. And even when it seemed like everyone had taken their seats, they heard the voice of the pilot. This is the captain. People have gotten hurt by going to the bathroom instead of staying in their seats. Let's be very clear about our responsibilities. My job is to get you through the storm. Your job is to do what I say. Now sit down and buckle up. Just then the bathroom door opens and a red-faced man with a sheepish grin exits and comes down the aisle with everybody looking at him. How would you like to be that guy? The pilot got his attention, didn't he? If you happen to be in the bathroom, this applies to you. Good pilots do what it takes to get their passengers home. So does God. So here's a question for you. How far do you want God to go in getting your attention? I mean, seriously. How far, and you know that could be far, how far do you want God to go in getting your attention? If God has to choose between your eternal safety and your earthly comfort, which do you hope he chooses? Don't answer that too quickly. Give it some thought. God does what it takes to get our attention. He cares about us. He loves us that much. Two friends were sitting together in a cafe when a noisy car alarm interrupted their conversation. Perhaps this happened to you. One friend said, what good are those car alarms when no one pays any attention to them? Nobody got up in the restaurant. Everybody just sat there. The other friend said, well, actually, some are quite effective. Last summer, my teenager spent a lot of time at our neighbor's house, so whenever I wanted him home, I'd go out to the driveway and jostle his car. <laughs> what gets your attention? God knows and God does what it takes to get our attention. God will whisper. God will shout. God will touch. God will tug. He will do whatever it takes to get our attention. If there are a thousand steps between us and him, he takes all but the last one. He will leave the final one for us to turn around. The choice to listen is ours, you see. Remember, God's goal is not to make us happy. His goal is, not, is to make us his. That's his goal. His goal is not to get us what we want. It's to give us what we need. And if that means a jolt or two to get us into our seat and buckle up, then let's be jolted, right? Jesus needed to get Saul's attention. The blindness got his attention, didn't it? The blindness was to show Saul just how spiritually blind he really was, to remove everything around Saul, any kind of distraction whatsoever. Jesus wanted to speak to his heart without anything getting in the way because this was going to be a deeply personal moment for Saul and Saul alone. Jesus wanted to develop a deep trust and obedience in his life, in Saul's life. And the result speaks for itself because Saul knew without a shadow of a doubt 
who he had seen, whom he had heard, and what he was supposed to do. Saul did not get religion in this moment. We've already seen him brag about having religion. Saul did not get religion in this moment. He already was an expert in religion. What he got was a relationship with Jesus. And the guys who were with him would eventually know what happened by the transformed life of this guy named Saul. And then would, ha would come their own opportunity to listen and to have an intensely personal moment with Jesus. You know, friends, sometimes God breaks into a life in a spectacular manner, doesn't he? And sometimes conversion is a very quiet experience. Sometimes it happens in a moment on a road to Damascus when God wakes us up to all the damage that our life is causing us and those around us. And sometimes it's kind of a gradual thing that happens over time as we learn, as we take another step, as we open our hearts to God. It always seems to be a grandma somewhere that's been praying for those people, doesn't it, somewhere down in the back? But it's always deeply personal. It's not about you and anybody else. It's not about the lights. It's not about the lightning. It's not about fireworks. It's not about voices. It's about you and Jesus and nobody else. It's about your heart and God's heart. It's about your sin and God's grace. The right way to come to faith in Christ is whatever way God personally brings you. He decided to bring Saul this way. For me, as I've said, it was hearing the testimony of the girl across the street who invited me to her baptism better now than 48 years ago. For three days, Saul doesn't eat or drink. He's praying. I imagine there's kind of a playback going on in his mind now. He's blind, but he can really see what he's done. Kill him. Kill Stephen. Kill them. Kill that family. He sees him grabbing people out of the synagogues and locking them up in prison. All of that pride, all of that anger, all of that angst, it's suddenly so real to him what he's been doing. And God has this plan which relies now on the obedience of an ordinary guy. The obedience of Ananias, that Ananias is actually going to show up. You know something? There are Saul's all around us. Every day, Saul's all around us. The name Saul means asked or prayed for. Taken to its full length, it might mean chosen, but it's like somebody, somebody asked for him. So, Saul, Saul means I was asked for. Somebody came and asked me. Someone came and looked for me. Somebody came, was seeking me out. There are people all around you who are seeking, who are searching for purpose and meaning. They're all around us every day, moment by moment, and just need to be asked, just need to be prayed for. And God is entrusting us to actually show up, to step in and tell our story. So how's Ananias with all of this? Well, as I mentioned, he's an ordinary guy. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name, me being one of them. God, you can't be serious. Don't send me to this man. It's a sting operation. This is a trap. I'm going to show up there. He's going to arrest me. I'm going to get thrown in prison. I might follow in Stephen's footsteps. Please, please, God, no, this can't be right. Have you ever been in that spot where you felt that the Lord was asking you to do something and your first response was, you're kidding, right? 
You want me to do what? And you want me to do it with whom? I think Ananias was thinking again, as we've talked about several times in this series, why me? Why me, Lord? Come on, there's got to be somebody better for this. If there's anybody that's a lost cause, it's got to be Saul. It's this guy. Friends, to be honest, sometimes God will lead us to very difficult people. We've got to learn to see through his eyes that Jesus died for them just as much as he died for us. We've got to learn to see through his eyes and, and just do what he asks us to do because Jesus believes in lost causes and every single one of us is proof of that. He knows that he will never lay eyes, he knows that we will never lay eyes on a person for whom he didn't go to the cross and die for. His love reaches further than we can ever imagine. It turns out, really, there's no such thing as a lost cause when it comes to knowing Jesus. Grace never draws a line on a willing soul. His arm is never too short to save. He can reach into the dirtiest trash can or down the dustiest desert road to Damascus. Saul would later write in Romans 5.8, as Paul, for right in the middle of our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. I'm willing to suggest to you that God either just has, is currently, or even in this moment, is about to whisper to you about asking you to step out for him. But as you begin to think about it, your mind starts to say already, if I actually make that invitation, if I actually go and talk to that person, if I actually share my story, if I actually invite them to my home, if they actually know what I believe, they're going to start thinking all kinds of crazy things about me. Your mind starts to trigger fear throughout your body, and there comes this moment where you're really pushed to the test of what you will trust more, the supernatural power of God or the fear of failure before people. If that sounds familiar, it probably should, because I've been there myself. Truth is, many of us say no. What if Ananias said no? What if Dale Moody said no? What if Tony said no? What if? I love God's response after Ananias brings his honest concern before, before him. But the Lord said to Ananias, Ananias just said, why me, not me, are you kidding? But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias, you need to understand that you don't see the whole picture here. I do. You can't see everything that I'm going to do, but here's where I need you to be. Here's where I need you to go. It will unleash all of this kingdom good. I'm telling you that if you show up, Paul is going to be a chosen instrument. He's going to do incredible things, but I need you, I need you to show up. When God whispers, you get to say yes. I'll go. But then, as you begin to think about it, you find yourself having to really wrestle with it. Okay, that was easy to say. How easy is it to do? Is it yes, even though? Even though it doesn't make sense? Even though I can't see the full picture? Even though the wind may get knocked out of me? Even though I might be rejected? Even though it might cost me? I'll still say yes. And I love the first three words of Acts 9.17, where we've heard similar words from both Stephen and Philip before. Then Ananias went. That's it. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
I love that Ananias finds himself just stepping out in obedience. He finds himself knocking on the door. The door opens. Hi, I'm Ananias. Is Saul here? Yeah, he's back there. He hasn't eaten for three days. He's been waiting for you. Thank you for coming. Ananias walks in. He sees Saul. And I imagine Saul is just lying there unsure of what's going to happen. It's such a beautiful picture because Ananias comes and he puts his hands on Saul's shoulder and he says, Brother. Brother. Brother Saul. I don't think I could have done that. I think if I saw Saul there and he'd killed my best friend Stephen, I would have walked up to him. That was my friend that you killed. And now you and I are going to have words. But not Ananias. Not this ordinary guy. Ananias, Ananias sees with sensitivity. Even though Saul has done a ton of harm to Ananias' friends and to the church, Ananias forgets that. He says, brother, brother Saul, the same Jesus who spoke to you spoke to me, and I am here because Jesus wants to use you. You are his chosen instrument. I'm here to tell you that you must be filled with the Spirit. And in this moment, something happens. The scriptures say immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He sees the wind. He sees the Holy Spirit. And Saul gets up and he goes and gets baptized. How cool is that? Same thing like Philip. He's, uh, he sees the wind. He sees the Holy Spirit. He gets up. He goes. He gets baptized. Now, if I can add my own interpretation of this, because I felt it at my conversion too, Paul knew well the Old Testament. He'd studied it. He was a brilliant man. All those verses. And there's this moment where all these verses that he had known, all of them just kind of shuffling across his forehead as they once were, now just sort of neatly start falling into a place like computer chips. And, oh, oh, that one in Exodus, I get it. Oh, oh, that one points to Jesus. Oh, Deuteronomy, oh, yeah, 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 that all points to Jesus. Isaiah, oh, my goodness, yes, was speaking about Jesus. Psalms, oh, all about Jesus. It all points to Jesus, and he's just getting filled with the Holy Spirit, and all this is making sense. I get it, I get it, I get it. Saul gets up, and he finds himself walking to a body of water to be baptized. He enters that water, old creation, past, murderer, beating people, chasing people down, terrorist. He comes out of that water, a new creation, redeemed. Can you imagine if Ananias said no? Thirteen books of the New Testament that might not have been written. Theology that many of us hold on to about grace and faith and what that might look like in our minds. The churches that were established might not have been. The people of God who were willing to trust in the power and the profound beauty of grace and truth might never have heard that message. And in a world where all the disciples still found themselves saying, just let us stay in Jerusalem. We'll kind of oversee things from here. Paul was the one who said, give me the world. Give me the utmost regions of the world. The reason that us Gentiles are sitting here today is because Paul stood up. Paul did. Many of us think we've got to be like Paul, but let me share a little tidbit with you. No extra charge here. Most people think that the moment Saul became a believer was when? God changed his name to Paul, right? In a grand gesture in that moment when Saul made a decision for Christ, he became Paul. And it was like when God changed Abram's name to Abraham, father of people, or from Jacob to Israel, the land will be named after you, from Simon to Peter, the rock, the church is going to be built on this kind of rock that you're standing on. But that's not actually what happened at all. You see, Paul was actually already Saul's name. Saul is the Hebrew name. Paul is the same name, Romanized. 
He had both names. And he's called Saul throughout another four chapters after he's made a decision. And you know who decides to change that name going forward? Paul, obviously with help from the Holy Spirit. It's Paul who decides at some point with the Holy Spirit's leading to go forward with his Roman name now as he begins his missionary journeys out into the Roman world. Makes sense, doesn't it? I'm Paul. I'm a Roman citizen. Here's the kicker. The names Saul and Paul are interchangeable in different languages, but the definitions of them are so not the same. Saul sounds important, asked for, chosen. Do you know what Paul Romanized means? Little. Little, teeny, weeny, little Paul. Little Paul. Not I was asked for, not I was chosen. Little, tiny, weeny, little Paul. See, it's a true measure of the man, his mission, his commission, and now his submission that he decides, I want to be known as little Paul. So then think again if you're saying to yourself in these moments, I'm just an ordinary person. I'm too little to do anything for God. Crudely translated, you're saying, I'm too Paul to do anything for God. Think about it. And don't forget, Paul would never have happened if ordinary little Ananias hadn't shown up. The church grows and fulfills its mission when the church begins to live like Ananias. When we simply, simply say yes. Will you? Will you? Would you bow your heads for a moment? <clears throat> there are some of you here I know who say yes over and over again. You minister to me. You are my heroes. And I see you all the time. You model what it is to say yes. And I'm just thrilled to be in the same place, breathing the same air as you. You hear God's whisper and you step out. You're unafraid. And there is power and there is beauty in what God has been doing through you. I just commend you. I just hold you up to the Lord. I need to tell every one of you that you are a disciple of high devotion. And you are becoming more and more and more like your teacher, Jesus. Good on you. You will hear, if you haven't already heard, that I'm retiring in the not-too-distant future. If I can coin D.L. Moody, don't believe a word of it. I'm resigning, not retiring. I love the Lord, I love to serve him, and I hope to do that right to the moment I take my last breath, and like Moody, then get to really start living and loving and serving at the feet of my Lord and Savior. And he can be your Lord and Savior too. Don't ever settle for sitting on the bench. Don't ever settle for being a spectator. Continue being a hero of the faith, living like Ananias, being the kind of person who hears God and says, yes, right away, yes, whatever it is. Don't ever stop saying yes. Some of you love Jesus and you have a desire to know him more. God's been whispering to you. He's been giving you names, faces. He's been telling you the places to engage with your story but you're stepping back, choosing not to hear him, trying to negotiate with God. 
I think God wants to tell you today, you have a story because I gave it to you. You have a story to share. Stop saying no. In your heart of hearts, you want to experience something supernatural. I know you do. And that begins when you say yes. Yes, you experience the Spirit. Stop making excuses. Allow your heart to take a, a risk and to ask, is it worth it for me to stay silent with my story? Because who knows what God might do through you at your work? Who knows what God might do with you in your neighborhood through that person you have a connection with? All he's asking you to do today is say yes. Just say yes. And there are some of you perhaps who like, who like that. You've been the one in control of your story. You've been like Saul. You've been climbing ladders. You're on the AAA method. You're going to do it all on your own. Can I just tell you there's a God in heaven who has love for you beyond what you can imagine? A God in heaven who frees terrorists like Saul and can free you, and he can free you and help you to even take your first step as you say yes. And like it happened with me, the scales will fall from your eyes, and for the first time you will truly, truly be able to see to see and know the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, to see the difference Jesus' forgiveness and grace makes in your life, to see yourself living in God's love and sharing it with others. Say yes, and you will experience something supernatural. Say yes, and you will experience the Spirit. And so, at the end of this four-part mini, I want to give the last words and the prayer at the end of the message to our brother Paul as we close. And this is what he writes. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silas, and Timothy, was not a yes and no God. But in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' glorious name. And all God's people agreed with Paul and said... Amen. Amen to the glory of God. <laughs>